The Tom Woods Show, episode 1442. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, as you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been spreading some pretty terrible ideas, and she's wrong on just about everything. Well, I've put together the definitive smash of all of it. The Green New Deal, affordable housing, so-called free college, high tax rates. It's in another free ebook, yes, a free ebook called AOC is Wrong, the Upside Down World of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Grab your free copy at AOCIsWrong.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. Another great book to talk about today with author Jim Otteson. It is Honorable Business, a Framework for Business in a Just and Humane Society. Jim's been a guest on this program a number of times before. He's a professor of political economy at Wake Forest University, where he's also executive director of the BB&T Center for the Study of Capitalism. He's the author of numerous works. Uh, We've discussed some of his work, as I said, in the past, but I was particularly interested in this new book, I believe from Oxford. Let me double check. I am correct. Oxford University Press. Very important for reasons that will become obvious. Jim, welcome back. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm delighted to have you. And of course, I think Naturally, this is an important book, and it's. I'm glad you did it. Thank you. I'm curious, of course, to know what motivated you to do it. I mean, obviously, it's it's a gap out there. I I think I was talking to Gary Chartier, who's also who's written a textbook, so not quite the same as yours on uh, business ethics. And I was saying to him that the impression that I have been given by people in the field, the relative handful of people in the field who are kind of sympathetic to my way of looking at the world, say that generally texts on this subject have a bias to them. And it's not, not that your book has a bias, but it's not, let's say, in the direction of your book. It's it's very much the opposite. Is that right? Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, a lot of the work that's done in business ethics focuses on uh, what they see as market failures, so various kinds of market failures. And a lot of the textbooks are uh, cases and the courses that are based on them uh, that are built on those textbooks present students with a series of cases where you'll get you know, one bad actor after another. So, you you know, you look at Enron and you say, well, weren't those guys bad? Yes, they were bad. You look at Bernie Madoff, wasn't he terrible? Yes, he was terrible. And the impression they can give is that business in itself is a very dangerous thing, uh, maybe encourages all sorts of vices in people who engage in business. And it really needs to be very carefully monitored and regulated at all times um, so that it doesn't loose various kinds of evils in the world. So, uh, yeah, I think that is the the strong impression one gets from a lot of the, not all, but a, a lot of the business ethics literature. So that's more or less what you're going after in the early parts of the book when you're saying that somebody who is engaged in business is actually not corrupting himself or or liable to do that, but rather is doing something that can enrich himself, that, who, that can uh, help him to achieve his goals in life. It could be, in other words, part and parcel of what it means to live a good life, pursuing honorable business. Exactly. And I, I mean, not all business is honorable, of course, um, and there are bad actors in business just as there are in any other walk of life. But I think it's a weak argument to say, well, you know, business is inherently bad. And so, you know, maybe something good can come out of it, but only if people make up for it afterwards, say, by you know, giving back. Just think about that term giving back. You know, if, you, if people don't say that business should give, they say it should give back. Um, but if you if you think about, you know, if your mother said to you when you were a child said, uh, hey, you need to give that back. Well, what does that mean you did? It means you stole something. 
Um, and so one of the questions I sort of I start the book with is, um, is that what business is about? Is it necessarily engaging in some kind of morally suspect behavior that you need to atone for like a sin? And I make the claim, and it is a controversial claim, but I claim that uh, if it's true, after we examine business and, um, and all the arguments in favor of a commercial society and against a commercial society, if we come to the conclusion after all of that examination that business in fact is something that needs to um, give back for, in other words, atone for, then I think we shouldn't just ask it to give back. We should say, don't do it in the first place. I mean, if you think about other things, you don't say to a thief, well, it's fine to keep stealing as long as you give some of what you steal to charity. You say, stop stealing. So I think that means it's incumbent on us, um, especially if we're gonna have things like business schools. I mean, we don't wanna have a school to teach people to be good thieves. If we're going to have a business school and we're going to have uh, we're going to train students in the technical functional areas of business, accounting, finance, marketing and so on, then we need to have um, a way of understanding business such that it's valuable in itself and the activity that it actually engages in. And I think uh, there is a plausible way to understand business. I call it honorable business where a person is benefiting not only himself but also benefiting somebody, at least one other person, but benefiting others at the same time. In other words, creating real value. Well, yeah, that's and that's really what you talk about in chapter one, the purpose of business. And so I think you've kind of hit on it there, but how would you describe the purpose of business? Well, um, so I, I think the way to begin thinking about business ethics is not to think about you know, compliance with laws or, um, or regulations. It's, that's not the first step. The first step is to ask for business, like for any other activity, um, what's the purpose of going into it? Is there some purpose beyond, you know, if you ask business students, you know, why they go into business or, you know, people ask business students, why are you studying business? It's often the case that people assume there are only two possible reasons you could go into it. Either you want to make money or you want to get a job. Um, And, you know, is it true that business students want to get a job and want to make money? Sure, of course it is. That's probably true, by the way, for every other college student, too. But still, that's not a particularly inspiring vision. Um, And so what I do in the book is suggest that um, maybe there's a higher purpose that business itself can be part of. And so I suggest a kind of hierarchy of value. We think about things at the highest level. Uh, What kind of society do we want to live in? We want to live in a just and humane society. Um, And a society like that will be constituted by various and, and protected by various social institutions, political, economic cultural, moral institutions. One of those sets of institutions relates to a market economy, a properly functioning market economy. And what makes a a market economy properly functioning is if people are engaging in honorable business where they create value for themselves only by at the same time creating value for others. And so this can give people a kind of framework for understanding what they're doing in business and their particular job, whatever it is, Um, If they want to know whether they're doing something, um, not just earning money, not just having a job, but doing something that serves a higher purpose, they can ask themselves, well, is what I'm doing playing the proper role in creating value in society, not just for myself, but for others, consistent with the set of institutions that ultimately undergird a just and humane society? You know, the question that'll be on the minds of some people would be, if you're going to talk to people, like, for example, in chapter three about a code of business ethics. Yeah. Some people will be inclined to think, all right, I, but I don't see why a business would want to adopt that when another business that's not so constrained can get extra advantages over them because they don't have the same moral scruples that the first business does. I mean, how do you handle that? 
Well, that's a difficult question, obviously, and, but I don't think that that question pertains only to people acting in business. I think that's in any walk of life. You know, if you're the sort of person who keeps your word and keeps your hands to yourself and um, and if you make an obligation, you keep it no matter what, um, but you're with in a society of people who don't always um, recognize their obligations or keep their word, then that can set you up for being taken advantage of, being exploited by other people. Um, and that's in really all walks of life, not just business. And you know, I spent a lot of time talking about this in the book, but um, one way to think about this that I'd suggest to you is, you know, if you think about it along the lines of um, a related topic, namely trade, free trade. So free trade, as that's one of the few things that virtually all economists across the political and economic spectrum agree on, free trade is good for everybody. It's good for um, individuals, it's good for our country, it's good for other countries. But the question could arise, well, Suppose free trade in general is good, um, but other countries are engaging in restricted trade. They have tariffs and quotas and other things. Should we still adopt free trade, even though, you know, maybe unilaterally, should the United States be a completely free trade country, even if it's the case that other countries where American citizens might do business or might trade or exchange, um, other countries are engaging in subsidizing and quotas and tariffs and that sort of thing. Um, and the answer is yes, we, sh we still should. Um, it still is a benefit to us. It's a benefit to our citizens and to our consumers, even if it's the case that other countries are engaging in, uh, on their own, are engaging in um, protection uh, for their trade and for their business. Now, I think something similar applies here. Um, it may be the case that um, following through on one's word and, um, and adhering to the code of ethics that I suggest in the book, means that some people will be able to benefit themselves because we're following rules that they aren't. Nevertheless, I think that's a short-term strategy. And you know, as the market becomes more globalized and as information about firms' activities and individual people's activities becomes um, more widely disseminated and easier to get, it's much harder to succeed as a person who doesn't keep his word or a business that doesn't keep um, its promises and offer good products uh, much more difficult to succeed in the long run. So these are short-term strategies for other people and countries who, or and firms who don't want to keep a code of business ethics. And in the long run, even the individual, even a an isolated firm or an individual or a country would still be better off in the long run. All right, let's talk about some of the moral issues you raise in Chapter 4. And there are a great many of them, and they're very common, and there's a lot that can be said about all of them. You start off with inequality. That probably is the one that's on the minds of most people. I mean, yeah, textbooks talk about externalities, but if you were to talk to the average person on the street today, judging from what we read in the newspapers, they would say that the most urgent problem is inequality. So how do you frame that issue in terms of honorable business when it doesn't seem like inequality is brought about by any deliberate choice of anyone? Um, it's a good question, and you're right. It, that is uh, paramount in the minds of uh, many people. In fact, um, I think it was in 2011 that uh, President, former President Barack Obama said that inequality was the defining issue of our times. So th that is a very great um, concern for a lot of people. One way that I approach this, this topic in uh, the book is to say, you know, is it the case that in a market economy there will be inequality in wealth and income? Yes, there, it is the case. Does that necessarily mean it's bad? Well, not necessarily. So there are, there are um, morally acceptable ways to generate inequality and morally unacceptable ways. And you can think about this just on the micro level, on the individual level. Um, if you have something I want, there are two ways I could get it from you. One is I could steal it from you. 
I could conquer you. I could take it. I could steal it. Maybe I could defraud it out of you. I offer to pay and then you give me the good or service, whatever it is, and then I don't actually pay. All of those ways we might call extractive. And economists call those zero-sum exchanges, which means there's no net increase in value in the world. They're just taking goods from one place to another and doing so involuntarily. Um, But the other way I could get something from you is by making you an offer that you're free to accept or decline. And if you do accept, then when we exchange, it's a, a benefit to you, otherwise you wouldn't have done it. And at the same time, it's a benefit to me, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. So that economists call a positive sum exchange. And in that way, we're actually generating a net increase in benefit. Now, is the benefit exactly the same to you as it is to me? Not necessarily, but we both do still benefit. um, And the overall net benefit, value, or prosperity has increased. And that's a way that a lot of inequality is actually generated in the world through these kinds of mutually voluntary and mutually beneficial transactions that are, because they were both mutually voluntary and and mutually beneficial, are innocent. So the mere fact of inequality itself is not necessarily morally suspect. It's how that inequality arose. So if you just take a snapshot look of society and you see, well, some people have a lot of wealth and other people don't have a lot of wealth, that's certainly true. But I would say it doesn't become unless we can show that some person or firm, if you like, got its uh, wealth through extractive means rather than through what we might call cooperative and voluntary means. That's really the issue. And if, if it's the case that somebody or some firm is getting wealth through extractive means, then that's a failure of justice, I would say. And it's not the inequality itself that's the problem. It's the failure of justice. Okay, that's exactly the way I look at it. Now, you have a section on unfairness. Now, there, that's more problematic because you have to come up with a definition of what constitutes fairness. And I think in these sorts of discussions, the people arguing have completely different approaches to what constitutes fairness. So I think it's hard to hard to make progress in, in that kind of discussion. How do you handle that? Yeah, that is very difficult. And, and for exactly the reason you specify that people have very different definitions of fairness. Um, and usually their definitions are um, what I would think of as something like a threshold definition, um, that distributions or redistributions of wealth or holdings are fair as long as they're below some threshold. But once they get beyond a threshold, then they see, they begin to seem unfair. So, you know, maybe if you think about in the United States, um, you know, is it the case that there are some people who have a hundred times as much wealth as other people? Uh, yes, that is the case. And so that might seem, well, that's unfair. Um, so we might say, you know, relative differences in wealth are acceptable, but extreme differences are unfair. But um, to use an example I use in the book, um, if you think about take that 100 fold difference in wealth threshold, suppose you have one person who has 100 times as much wealth as another person. Um, Does that seem inherently unfair to you without knowing anything else about them? Maybe it does. But suppose I say that the the wealthier person is Bill Gates, who uh, at the moment has about 100 billion dollars in net worth, which is a lot of money, obviously. But who's the uh, who's the poor person who has to try to manage on only one one hundredth the wealth of Bill Gates? Um, Well, you could pick a lot of people, but one person is Michael Jordan. So Michael Jordan uh, has a net worth of only about a billion dollars. So Michael Jordan is extremely poor relative to Bill Gates, not relative to most of the other people in the world. But it would um, seem very strange to say that because he's so relatively poor um, in comparison to Bill Gates, that therefore we should that it's unfair that Bill Gates has as much as he does. And we should redistribute some of Bill Gates's wealth to Michael Jordan. 
So the threshold idea of fairness is a real one and people are concerned about it. But figuring out, A, what the threshold should be that, tr- that should trigger, say, compensatory action or redistribution or figuring out um, what exactly led to the differences in wealth, those are the real issues. And I think those are um, that complicates the issue much greater than um, just saying, well, it seems unfair. All right, folks, let's take a quick break. I have a rather serious message for people who, see if you recognize yourself in this, feel like they're running themselves ragged. They're just constantly exhausted. They're just balls of stress. And it just doesn't seem like there's any end in sight. Well, I've got something I think will help you. And you may say, Woods, I'm not sure about this. Well, you know what I say back? Give it a shot. What have you got to lose? And that is an amazing meditation app of all things, a meditation app called Simple Habit. I'll be honest with you. I was skeptical of this. And then I started using it and I'm just blown away by the results. The beautiful thing about it is you don't have to meditate for 30 minutes with your eyes closed in a dark room in a lotus position. You can consume these five-minute meditations while you're on the go or while you're doing something else. And the difference it makes is unbelievable. It's got 65,000-plus five-star reviews. Hundreds of meditations are available for free, and if you get the premium subscription, you get thousands. Well, go to simplehabit.com woods to get 30% off that premium subscription if you're one of the first 50 Tom Wood Show listeners to do so. So simplehabit.com slash woods, take 30% off the premium subscription. That's simplehabit.com slash woods. Now let's talk about um, so-called creative destruction, where that's a term that uh, was popularized, I guess, by Joseph Schumpeter, looking at the way the market economy operates in that, let's say some, maybe sometimes an entire industry simply disappears or, or a big chunk of an industry disappears because there's there just isn't demand for it anymore. Tastes have changed. Technology has changed. Uh, whatever it is, or it's more profitable to build something somewhere else, uh, and that can be very disorienting for people if they built their whole lives and educations and expectations around that particular industry. But on the other hand, in the place of that, is created something else that that serves consumers more, that, that, that actually caters to people's preferences. But you can imagine people saying, and you don't have to imagine, they, they do say it, that this just goes to show how disconnected the market economy is from the welfare of ordinary people. I mean, yes, 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 in the abstract, you're helping consumers by having you know, some industries go by the wayside and others arise in their place, but that's cold comfort to the people who are suffering in that situation. And they would say, can it really be true, Jim Otteson, that, that the market economy is a mechanism through which people can live a good life and can behave in ways that are humane and that help other people to flourish? It, it seems instead as if it is amoral and searching only for profit. So what's the answer to that? Yeah, that's a uh, very good question or a set of questions. Um, yeah, and I think it, it doesn't do people any favors to say, you know, when you think about that term creative destruction – well, there is the creative part. So we're generating new ideas, innovations, uh, engaging in entrepreneurial activity to improve people's situations. But creative destruction also has the destructive part, as you articulate, that that means that some firms or some jobs or maybe even some industries um, could also go out of business. Um, the market moves away from those um, people and, or those firms, those industries. And that um, makes it seem as if, well, we're benefiting some people, but at the expense of others. And I think that's the real worry about creative destruction. 
But you notice that when you look empirically at countries across the world, the places where there is the most creative destruction are also the places where there is the most increase happening in overall prosperity. So wealth is growing. And what that means as a kind of secondary effect is that where you have creative destruction, that's where you have many more opportunities being generated. So in the United States, for example, we have some 35 million or so businesses um, currently in operation, but that number is constantly changing and expanding. Um, so it is true that if my job is um, is eliminated, my firm goes out of business, um, that that can cause um, pretty significant disruption and anxiety and cost in me and my life. The trade-off for that is that the country, and I in particular, will also should also have more resources that would enable me to try something else. Now, that can still be cold comfort, but um, the other thing I would say about that is connected with um, one of the parts of your question, which is you said tastes might change. One of the things that leads to creative destruction is not just people innovating new ways to do things or new products or new services, but it's also choices that other people are making. So if I have a coffee shop and you go to my coffee shop every day um, and uh, I expect you're going to keep coming and you expect you're going to keep coming, but then a new coffee shop opens up across the street from me um, and suppose you try it and you like it better. Well, I that, that could, if I lose you as a customer, maybe I lose other people as a customer at the limit. Maybe that means I can't even stay in business. I go out of business. That is certainly a loss for me. Um, I wanted to stay in business and I can't stay in business, but it's a loss that resulted from other people making choices that they're entitled to make. Um, I don't have the right to demand that people buy my services or buy my goods. I have to respect other people's choices too. And unless we're willing to say that some people's choices are more important than others and deserve more respect or should be accorded more respect than others, then I think part of the price we um, leave, part of the price we pay for living in a free society is enabling people um, to make choices and to respect their choices. The uh, the section on creative destruction is in your chapter, honorable business and treating people the right way. And again, I I would say that at least a good many of these chapter titles just fly in the face of what people would expect to see in a book like this, yes. because uh, so many people think well, treating people the right way is the exact opposite of what happens in a market economy because people are focused supposedly on short-term profit and on squeezing every dollar they can out of any particular situation. So give me a bird's eye overview of what it means to treat people the right way and how the role that honorable business plays in this. Another good question. So um, one of the foundational moral principles that I argue for in the book is what I call the principle of more of equal moral agency. Um, that means that we expect and treat and respect each person as being a moral agent equal in that regard to us, um, which means capable of making choices and capable of being held responsible for their choices. So if you think about treating the right people the right way, that sometimes means if they need help, we help them. But it also means letting them work out a plan for their life that actually is appropriate to the circumstances they face and also their unique schedule of value and purpose in life, and that includes moral values. Oftentimes when we talk about business and markets and we think about markets being amoral, we think about it as if it were some kind of separately existing entity that's exerting power over us rather than um, lots of people, millions of people making choices in their own cases. So what I suggest is that um, treating people the right way means things like, especially in business, things like keeping your word, doing the best you can for employees, customers, clients, et cetera, 
Um, but it also means um, enabling and respecting people if they decide they don't want to buy from you, if they decide they don't want to work for you or under the terms you're offering and allowing them to make that decision. Um, sometimes people make decisions we don't want, like the people who don't want to um, who don't want to come to my coffee shop and drink my coffee. That's not the decision I want people to make. But treating people the right way, in part, means you have to um, allow them to make the choices they think are best in their own situations, even if they're choices that we disagree with, even if they're choices that we're pretty sure that they, they themselves would um, would regret after having been made. Still, they're in their own rights to be able to make those decisions. And I think we have to respect those decisions. And that's a way of respecting their equal moral agency. You use the term the just and humane society, and you have a chapter from business to a just and humane society. So you introduce the concept early on, but you don't elaborate on it until later. What does a just and humane society look like and what is the business contribution to it? Yeah, that's that's a, I I bring that up later in the book. You're right, because first in the book, what I want to stipulate is what I think are the principles that an honorable business person would follow or should follow. And then I want to connect that to what I think is the role that honorable honorable business could play in, as you say, a just and humane society. And there, to understand what a just and humane society is, I develop, I I rely on an argument from the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, um, who suggested that, you know, that human beings may be alone among creatures on earth, but human beings have a hierarchy of values, meaning um, they have things they want to accomplish today that are in the service of ends that they that are sort of medium term um, goals they want they have for six months or a year or five years from now. And then they have longer term goals, things they want to accomplish in 20 years or by the end of their life. Uh, but this suggests that there should be some ultimate goal or ultimate end. And Aristotle suggests as the term for this ultimate end, eudaimonia, um, which is a bit hard to translate. It's often translated as happiness, but it means something like living a life um, that was well and fully lived. The, the idea is that at the end of your life, you look back on what you did and you say that was a life that was worth having been led. So I connect that to society and social institutions by saying that a, a just and humane society is one that protects people's ability to achieve for themselves a path in life that is unique to them and for them, given their um, their purposes, their moral values, their other values um, that can enable the chance of having a eudaimonic life or a life that can actually be happy. And so my suggestion is that um, honorable business plays a role, not the only role, obviously. There are many other things too, love, friendship, et cetera. But honorable business can play a role in enabling people to achieve some of their more near-term and even some of their longer-term ends so that at the end of their life, they can say, yeah, that was a that was a properly virtuous and a eudaimonic life that I led. Um, and a, the society that's just and humane is the one that enables more and more people the chance at achieving that kind of life. I think we may have, it's possible that in a previous episode, we talked about this. And in fact, now that I think about it, I think we did an episode on it. But I've been very interested in uh, the corporate social responsibility movement. And you have a brief discussion of that in chapter four, and I, again, I was talking to Gary Chartier about this, and of course, the, the quotation that gets brought up in this context a lot is the one from Milton Friedman about the purpose of business being basically to earn profits. It's not to be a philanthropic organization. What do you think about that? What, what is wrong? Is there something wrong with the corporate social responsibility movement? And is it that the particular causes that people are urging businesses to support are wrong, or is it the idea of supporting a cause that's wrong? 
Um, it's a good question. And corporate social responsibility, that idea, um, has dominated a lot of the business ethics literature and uh, research for about 40 years. So um, it has been one of the most uh, important and talked about topics. One of the difficulties or challenges I think it faces is that oftentimes it's framed um, in terms of understanding business as being the solution to all problems, as if uh, maybe markets or commercial society generally or a business or a firm need to be able to serve all goals at the same time. Um, And that's not true. So firms are created like every other organization that uh, human beings engage in. They're created with certain kinds of purposes. And we can evaluate those firms and other organizations on the basis of whether they actually achieve the purposes they're set up to achieve. But the idea of corporate social responsibility is often taken to be the idea that businesses should serve um, not just shareholders or the the legal owners of a business, but what's sometimes called stakeholders. That means all the people who have anything to do with the business, that's employees, um, customers, maybe the local community, maybe the larger community, maybe the country. And my suggestion that I uh, spell out in the book is that if you put too many of these different aims on business or these different purposes on business, um, then they're inevitably going to fail at even the narrow purposes they set themselves up for. If I start a coffee shop, I want to serve coffee to my customers. But if I have two, three, four, five, ten different other goals that I'm also supposed to serve, then I might not be able to serve the immediate goal of um, giving good coffee to my customers in a way that they appreciate it. So business is just one aspect of our life. It's a it's an important aspect, but it's just one aspect of our life. And I think to understand corporate social responsibility, we should um, begin by thinking, well, what is, what is the larger purpose that a business is supposed to serve? And is it serving that well? And if it's serving that well, then what that could do and what I argue uh, honorable business can do is um, enable people to have the resources available to them so that they can also be- begin building out the other elements of a life and a community that's worth serving. So there are very few problems in the world that we face um, that having more resources available to us would not help us uh, serve. And if business can generate more resources and more prosperity, then in that way, perhaps indirectly, but in that way, what it can what it can do is put us in a position to be able in a better position to be able to construct the kind of world we would like to live in. The book is Honorable Business, a Framework for Business in a Just and Humane Society by James R. Otteson, our guest today. Jim, thanks so much for your time. And I'm going to be linking, of course, to the book at tomwoods.com slash 1442. And I hope people will spend some time with it. It's important and very well done. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Tom. It's my pleasure. All right, folks, that's it for this week. The next episode of my sister podcast, Contra Krugman, which I do every week with Bob Murphy, will be coming out early next week because we are on board the Contra Cruise. We're going to record that episode in front of a live audience over the weekend, and then we'll bump it out to you guys on Monday. So no angry letters to us. We're aware of it. It's just the weirdness of the schedule. Uh, We decided to do it this way, just have it come out on Monday. So look for that, and I'll see you next week. Oh, wait, 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 wait. If you don't yet have my ebook, AOC is Wrong, The Upside-Down World of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you're hurting yourself more than you're hurting me, all right? It is it is full of great stuff, costs you nothing, but all the kinds of arguments she makes that sound superficially plausible to the average American or she wouldn't be as popular as she is need to be knocked down. They need to be dismantled, and that's exactly what you'll see happening in this book. So you can pick that up over at AOCisWrong.com. See you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.
Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.